Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will be none left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. God's word for God's people. You may be seated. Amen. Well, uh, Luke didn't read the whole chapter, but we are going to try to preach it. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll try to do that. Uh, Father, you're so good to us. Every time we get to gather together uh, and hear from you, as Colin just said, that we get to um, be a community and a family of people who are trying to do this thing together, that we're trying to walk with you together in a community. And so, God, um, this is a pivotal point of that in our journey together where we get to hear your word preached to us as a people. And so we pray for sharp minds and soft hearts. Um, God, especially as we come to a disputed or confusing passage to many, um, God, we need you. Uh, We need your spirit to give insight. And we need you to give us a a, a worshipful moment here. Uh, This wouldn't just be head knowledge, but that you would help correct our views of how we see you, how we see the future, how we see what you're doing in our lives. And so we need you to do all these things. So we pray for your spirit to help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, There are a few different topics in the church that can simultaneously uh, make people greatly intrigued and somewhat fearful of. All right, maybe you know what I'm talking about. Like a few ideas, a few theological conversations that can both, you know, help some people kind of lean in on the front of their seat and they're ready to go, while simultaneously other people kind of lean back and dread that they're even in the room, all right, which I know. And today is going to be one of those topics, all right, because today we are addressing the topic of the end times, all right, so cue the spooky music, all right, as we're, we're going to look at the end of all things and what Jesus has to say about the end. Uh, now, again, I know even as I say that, There's probably a few of you who literally just kind of like dialed in. Like you're ready to go. You know that at Providence, I think in five years, we've talked about the end times maybe two times. So uh, this doesn't happen often. And so I know that for some of you, you're ready to go. You want to get into this. You got your notebook out. For others of you, I know that you might be having like flashbacks to past church experiences with lots of charts and dates and prophecies and crazy things. And you're a little bit nervous. Okay. I get that. And that's okay. Uh, Because wherever you're coming from, let me just say this, um, I've been there, okay? Because I've been in the space where I've thought, you know, as a Christian, that this is the thing. Like, we got to figure out end times. Uh, The big, fancy theological word is, it's called eschatology, all right? So there's your free theology word for the day. Eschatology means the study of end times. And I've thought, you know, I've read the theology books. I started the debates because I thought, man, this is the thing we need to nail down. 
I've also been in some spaces, uh, especially early on after I became a Christian, um, where I got a little bit nervous and I kind of pushed back from it. Uh, there was one time actually right after I became a Christian, I'm talking the first couple months, I was in this group of people and there was this guy, he's kind of an older guy, and he was talking to us and he started talking to us about end time stuff. And he would, like, got passionate about it. And he literally, I don't remember the exact number, but he, he basically told us, like, hey, Jesus is coming back in 92 days. And I, again, I'm a brand new Christian. I'm like, really? Like, do you know that? Because I didn't know. And he literally, he's like, what are you doing to prepare? Like, you got three months. And I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm still just grateful Jesus died for my sin. That's all that I know. I don't know anything else. But it kind of spooked me. I'm like, this guy kind of seems crazy. Like, I don't know. Uh, and so I kind of pushed away from it. Or for some of you, maybe you're in this spot and, and just cards on the table. This is kind of probably functionally where I've been the last couple of years. I'm not saying it's right, but I've kind of been in this spot of like, I don't know that this stuff really matters that much. There's other things to focus on. We don't need to think about end time stuff. There's, you know, there's things today that we need to live and, and we don't really know that stuff anyway. I've kind of been in the, the functional, maybe you've heard the classic Christian joke about end times that people say they're pan millennials because it all pan out in the end. You hear that one? Okay, there's your free, like, end times dad joke for the day. But, but I've kind of been there a little bit. of like, I don't know, does this stuff matter? Can we, really, can we really even know? Why do we study this stuff? So wherever you're at this morning, maybe you're intrigued, you love it. Maybe you're just apathetic toward it. You don't think it matters. Or maybe you're a little bit nervous. Let me just say that today we are talking about it because Jesus talked about it. All right, and that, that's just what we do here. So we primarily preach through books of the Bible, and so we picked Matthew, and when you do that, you eventually get to Matthew 24, and you address these topics. So we don't pick and choose what we think is important. We don't avoid what we don't think is important. We just preach straight through here. And any time that we're here in this room and someone's behind this stand with the Bible, all we're trying to do is give you what the next passage is and how we understand it. And so simply put, that's my goal for today that we're just going to look at Matthew 24 and try to understand what Jesus does say about some of this end time stuff. Uh, now, with all that being said, let me say a couple things up front. Okay, so first, just so you know, here at Providence Church, we do not have an official stance on end times theology. Okay, so what I'm about to preach to you is what I feel like the Lord is saying from Matthew 24, um, but we don't have this official stance. You know, we have certain things that all of our members have to agree on, we have some more things that all of our elders have to be on the same page with. This is not one of them, okay? So I'm not giving you the official providence stance, all right? And with that, second, just again, to be really honest with you, my view of this chapter slightly shifted this week. Uh, even on Monday, I read it once and I kind of wrote down a little outline and what that was is different than what I'm about to preach to you, okay? And, and I think that's actually good. Because what I'm doing is we're just, we're looking at a text. I read it over and over and over again. I prayed about it. I read people that are far smarter than I am. And I let that kind of shape what I believe, which I think is a key thing for us as Christians. It's easy to kind of have our preconceived thoughts and we kind of force the Bible to fit into that. Um, but I think it's good for us to read it over and over and over again. I talked to a number of people about it and I landed not in a massive way, but slightly different spot, uh, which again leads me to the final thing. As we go through this today, I'm not going to go hard on all the like end times views, all the nuances, or 50 different Bible verses, all right? So this isn't a talk just on end times. What our goal is, is to look at Matthew 24 in its context and understand what Jesus has for us from this teaching, okay? That's our goal when we preach. We're looking at this text, and we're just going to try to understand in its context what is he saying. So let's go to Matthew 24. 
you got a Bible, Matthew 24, um, as you're turning there, just by way of warning, um, this is essentially going to be like a, a part one type sermon, all right? So I graciously decided to spare you guys from a 70-minute sermon. So we're going to take this in, in two weeks, because Matthew 24 and 25 is all one teaching of Jesus. So it's one main thing that we're going to split up into two sections. So this week, we're just going to look at his teaching and what he says about the end times, Next week, going into Matthew 25, is a few stories calling us to live in a certain way because of that. Does that make sense? So today, all we're doing is we're looking at what he's saying, and then next week, we're going to discuss how do we apply what he's saying. So both of these things are important. So you've got to be here next week so we can put these things together. So we're going to try to get all of a chapter of teaching on the end times in 30 minutes. So uh, everyone ready? If you're ready, say, I'm ready. Okay, let's go. Matthew 24. Uh, Let's just get a little bit of the context, and this will kind of set us up for the next two weeks. Uh, Let's read verses 1 through 3. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming into the end of the age? Okay, so let's notice how he starts here, the the context piece. It immediately says that Jesus is leaving the temple. And we're going to talk more about this in a few minutes, but this is important because uh, most commentators agree. This is the last time he was in the temple or leaving the temple. So this is a big thing. Remember, these are just days away before his crucifixion. And he leaves the temple, uh, and as he does, you notice he kind of drops a bomb, like as he's leaving it. The, you know, they're walking out, and the disciples are probably like, hey, this is a great building or something. And Jesus says, yeah, all of it's coming down. You know, it's like he's walking out and just saying, yeah, this is, this is all going to go away. Which is huge, because this is literally the house of God. Like, this is the centerpiece of all Jewish faith and practice has to do with this building. So, verse 3, these Jewish disciples, understandably so, They want a little more information about this idea that it's getting torn down. So look at what they say in verse 3. This is their question. Tell us, when will these things be? That's the the tearing down of the stones. And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? As you look at that, or as you read it, I want you to ask yourself, how many questions are the disciples asking? Okay, so think about that. Read through it. As you read through it, how many questions are they asking? Uh, Some people argue on this. They say, well, it's one question, it's two questions, it's three questions. I think that at this point, the disciples are asking Jesus one question. Okay, I think verse three is one question that they're asking Jesus. Because he just said, hey, this whole temple, it's getting torn down. All the stones are gonna be torn off and this whole thing is coming down. Now, for a Jewish person, The only thing that they could comprehend that God would let his temple be torn down is at the end of all things. Like this destruction, because it already got uh, torn down once. He brings them back from exile. There's all these prophecies about this great and glorious temple. It's going to last forever. And in their minds, they're probably thinking the only way that this is getting torn down is when Jesus comes back, it's the end of everything. So I think they're asking one main question to Jesus. But what we're going to see throughout the chapter is I think that Jesus answers two questions, okay? So I think what Jesus is saying, even though they don't know it, they ask one question, I think Jesus is saying what you're really asking 
is two things, okay? Here's the two questions I think that they're asking. First, he's gonna answer this idea of when will these things be? That's in reference to the destruction of the temple. And then second, what is the sign of the end? So he's taking their question and he's gonna answer it in two parts. When is the judgment coming on the temple and when is Jesus gonna return and it's the end of all things? Um, Now, you might be wondering, okay, why am I spending so much time on one little question here? I think that verse three is like the key that helps us stay on track with this chapter. It's a confusing chapter if you've read it before. There's lots of theologians that debate lots of things, but I think this is pivotal. Uh, because here's a couple views that people have, like commonly held views that I think um, might be a little bit off. Uh, the first one is that when they're talking about Matthew 24 and all of this stuff, um, there's some that believe all of this is only talking about the future. Okay, this view is called the futurist view. Everyone say futurist. Futurist, okay? That's pretty easy. That means future. So everything is about the future, they would say. All of Matthew 24. The problem with that view, though, I think, is that that completely ignores Jesus' prompt and the specific questions from the disciples, right? His whole prompt, the whole reason this conversation's happening is because the temple, he said, is gonna get torn down and they ask, well, when are these things gonna be? Now, again, they may be fuzzy on what exactly they're asking, but at the very least, they are asking about the temple. So to say all of this is only about the future, I think misses that that would be Jesus completely ignoring the point of this chapter and their question. The other side, there's people that would say, no, 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 it's not about the future, but it's only talking about the destruction of the temple. So that happened in the year AD 70, that the temple actually does get torn down. And so they would say all of this chapter is only talking about the past. That view, it doesn't really matter to you, you don't need to remember this, but just so you know, that view is called the preterist view. Everyone say preterist. Okay, and now you know a Latin word too, because that's kind of Latin for uh, the past. So it's just the two different sides all about the future, or for us, it's all about the past. It's all about the destruction of the temple. Well, I think that view misses the mark because that completely ignores the second part of their question. They are putting all this together, but they want to know, when does the temple come down? When are you coming back at the the end of all things? And so I think this key to knowing there's two questions here actually helps us grasp what Jesus is trying to say. In this chapter, he's gonna address first when the destruction of the temple, when these things will be, and then second, when is the end, all right? So if, if I could kind of outline this entire teaching, if you're a notes person, you can do this to help you make sense of it. I think that first, this first section, Jesus is gonna talk about the last days, okay? The last days, all the verses are on here. So the last days, then he's gonna shift into talking about kingdom and judgment. So that's, he's gonna talk about God's kingdom and the judgment that is coming for Israel, And then at the end of this chapter, and then goes into chapter five, is living for the end. So he's gonna talk about the last days, this kingdom and judgment theme for Israel, and then what do we do with the end in mind? How do we live in light of that? Today, we're mostly gonna hit those first two, and then next week, we're gonna hit pretty much all of living for the end. So let's look first uh, at Jesus talking about the last days. This starts in verse Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter today, but let me give you this one, because I think this one's important. So 4 through 14, follow along with me. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. 
See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay, lots of stuff. And lots of not-so-fun stuff, if you notice. It's being led astray, false Christs, death, wars, hatred, lawlessness. And then he gives you one little uptick at the end where he says, and the gospel will go forward to the end of the age. All right. So our question with this is, in this section, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, I think before he gets to their specific question, he's going to orient his disciples and us around the time or the days or the age that we live in. Okay, and what I think he's going to say is that this section is about the last days, which are between his first coming and his second coming. Okay? Um, now, I know for some, when you read, and depending on your translation, it'll say either the end of the age or the last days. When you read that, I know that the idea that 2,000 years uh, is the last days feels a little funny. Right? Like you hear last days, you don't think that it's going to be thousands and thousands of days. Uh, But we have to remember that when the Bible talks about God's judgment coming at the end, the last days does not speak about the quantity of days, but the quality or the type of days that it is. Okay, does that make sense? And we we actually use this language a lot. Like uh, maybe you've had uh, older people in your life say stuff like, you know, in, in my day, we were never as coddled as you kids today, right? Does anyone else have cranky grandparents like I did? You know, I said that a lot. Or, and what they're talking about is not a specific day. You know that, right? Like when they say, you know, in my day, they're not saying a, a day. They're saying the days or the years where they grew up were different. Or, or we'll say things like, you know, today we just, we live in a different day or we live in a different age. That's the type of idea here because we have like ages, and we have the Stone Age, and the Iron Age, and the uh, Modern Age. And these are all ways of talking about blocks of time that are defined by certain qualities or characteristics. It's the quantity, or it's not the quantity, it's the quality, the type of days. So when the Bible talks about the last days, or the age that we live in, that's how it's communicating. It's not giving you a number of days, it's giving you the type of days that we are in. And what is our current age? What is this age that we live in? It is the age between Christ's first coming. When he was, you know, incarnate, he was born, he lived, he died, rose again, ascended into heaven. Between that and when he returns, the final time. Okay, that season, this day, is the day that we live in. Now, Jesus teaches that in these days, in this age, there are going to be trials There will be wars, kingdom against kingdom, family against family, people will be led away, and the gospel will go forth until the end. He said that's what we can expect in this day. Now, there are going to be ebbs and flows of that, but that's the age we live in. Okay, now, before we move on, I do think by just a quick way of application, this is pretty pivotal for us to just ask ourselves, 
do we understand and believe that is the age we live in? Okay, think about this. That, that whole section, do we understand and do we believe that that is the type of day that we live in? Let me give you a few questions that might help you see if you actually believe this. First question, ask yourself, are you surprised by trials or suffering in your life? Because Jesus says, in this last day, there's going to be trials, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be hardships. And I think for some of us, we have this idea that's kind of been ingrained in our mind that really, Jesus should make all of life happy, healthy, and wealthy. And when a trial comes, we're utterly surprised. Now, I'm not saying that those trials or suffering is, is good or that we should embrace the beauty of them, but I am saying that Jesus says, in this day, that is going to happen. And I think for so many of us, the reason that we have such a hard time or that suffering can be catastrophic for our faith is because we don't believe that that should be the day that we live in. We kind of have this belief that all of that should be gone, and all of that will be gone one day. That's just not the day that we live in. To have a, a, a faith that can endure, a hope that can endure, we have to know this is the age we live in, that there are going to be hardships. But second, let me ask you this, on the flip side of that, do you today expect gospel fruit? Okay, think about this, do you expect that the gospel is a power that can bear fruit in your life? Because he said at the end of that, there's gonna be trials, there's gonna be suffering, persecution, hardships, and the gospel will go forth until the end of the age. Meaning, this is what Romans 1 says, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation today. That in this age, it is not fully realized, but the gospel actually does have power in our lives. Uh, like it actually can save. Like when you preach the gospel, people will come to faith. The gospel has power. Colossians 1 said the gospel is bearing fruit in all the world. Do we believe that it can transform? that it can work in us? Do we have this kind of, again, this is maybe where we get off, that we kind of believe, well, the world's hard, life is hard, nothing's ever gonna change, I just gotta kind of get through it. Is that what Jesus says? Yes, it's gonna be hard, and the gospel really does have power in our lives. Are we seeing that? Like, do we see the fruit of transforming work? You know, we can live so often thinking, you know, this is just, this is just my sin, this is just my lot in life, I just can't get any better, I can't grow. None of that is true. Because the power of God through his gospel and his spirit actually does bear fruit in our lives. Third, ask yourself this question. Do you live like Jesus is king today? Because in this age, he may not be physically or visibly here, but when he ascended to heaven, he is ruling and reigning over all things. And again, oftentimes we can believe or functionally get into the mindset that either my own feelings, my own thoughts, my own desires, they rule and reign. That other people rule and reign. That Satan or the world rules and reigns and there's no hope out of it. Again, that's just not true. Jesus says that in this age, he still is king. He still rules and reigns over all things and he is the one that we live for and are called to. This is the age that we live in. That was true of the disciples 2,000 years ago, and it's true of us even today. These are the last days that Jesus talks about. But then Jesus does move on, and I think he shifts to specifically address the disciples' first question. And much of the rest of this passage, I think, is around that question of when these things will be. When is the temple getting torn down? So uh, this is, again, I think uh, 15 through 28, this next section is all about this. I'm not going to read it all. Let me give you the first two verses just to kind of set us up. 
Verse 15, he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation. Sounds like a pro wrestler's nickname or something. It's like this intense little phrase, but what it means, it actually comes directly from the Old Testament book of Daniel. So you don't got to go there. But the gist is, Daniel prophesied that one day there was going to be this abomination that happens in the holy place, in the temple. And it's going to destroy and destruct all things about what is going on in the temple. And so he makes this prophecy, and Jesus says, that's about to happen. Uh, And Jesus was correct just 40 years after this. um, The Romans came into Jerusalem, uh, and part of this abomination is that um, people that weren't followers followers of God would go into the temple. They would make sacrifices to other gods and they would desecrate this holy place, which is exactly what happened. It says that the whole thing is going to be destroyed, which Rome does exactly. And what does Jesus say to do when this happens? Verse 16, he says, you got to flee. He says, run. Actually, if you read on, it says, you better hope you're not pregnant, that it's not the Sabbath. Like you, you are going to have to get out of here and flee. It is actually going to be one of the most horrific scenes for God's people in their history. That's exactly what happened in AD 70. The Romans came in, they did all of this, and they scattered God's people. This is the great trial for anyone who was listening to this in their day. That was the main trial or judgment that they faced. Now, if we keep going to the next section, I think this next section helps us understand why that's happening. And it's also probably the the most kind of controversial piece that I'll give you today. So let's look. Let me read 29 through 31, and then I'll just explain what I think he's saying here. 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, And all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, so let's think again. Remember, there's two questions he's asking. When is this destruction of the temple, that judgment? And when is the coming of Jesus and the end of all things? So right away, when you read this, especially if you have a little heading on your section here, which question do you think he's addressing here? Probably the latter, right? This is all about the coming of the Son of Man. And when I read this this week, again, literally on Monday, I wrote a little outline after reading this once, and that's what I put. This is talking about the second coming of Jesus. Now, I'm gonna try to do this kind of as quickly but helpfully as I can. But my view changed this week that I don't think these verses are primarily talking about Jesus' second coming. Now, I do think There is going to be him descending on the clouds. We know that from Acts. I think he is going to gather up his people. So all of that, I think, is true. And that's good, and that's our hope. But I think in context here, this isn't primarily talking about that. So let me just try to explain quickly. Let's just do each verse. Verse 29. As you look through it, it talks about tribulation, sun being darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Okay, all of this is classic Old Testament judgment language. 
Okay, so when God talks about bringing life to things or his creation account, it's all about bringing things out of nothing. He hangs the sun and the moon and the stars. He brings earth uh, together. He scatters the water. He does all of this. And anytime in the Old Testament God wants to talk about judgment, he basically talks about decreation, which is what we have here, right? It goes dark, the stars fall, often you'll get earthquakes and the breaking up of this land. All of that is just creation like imploding. And that's his imagery to talk about judgment. Now, while this can talk about literal, like the earth falling apart, and I think it can talk about that, it does not have to. Okay, so in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, you have judgment on the land of Egypt, judgment on Edom, judgment on Moab, all these different nations. All of those, it talks about language just like this, that the stars are gonna fall, the earth is gonna fall in, that everything's gonna be shaken. And that didn't happen physically, it was a sign of God's judgment on those nations. So I think what he's saying here is not necessarily that all the stars will fall and all the earth will fall apart. I think he's just saying judgment is coming. Okay, so that's what I think 29 is saying. Now look at verse 30. This is where it gets a little bit more tricky. Verse 30 says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Okay, so this is where we go. Obviously, this is talking about Jesus, right? He's the son of man in Matthew, and he's coming back. And again, I do think he's coming back on clouds. Okay, so I do think all of that in Acts and everything, I think that that's true and it's a hope. But I don't think that's originally and primarily what he's talking about here. Um, All the imagery from verse 30 is directly taken from Daniel 7. Okay, so here's just a little Bible reading tip. Anytime in the New Testament that it's getting images or quotes from the Old Testament, the way that you understand it is by going to the Old Testament and finding out what does that actually mean. So to understand verse 30, we gotta go to Daniel 7, which again, you can turn there if you want, otherwise it'll be on the screen. But let me read you two verses about what he's talking about in Daniel 7. This is verses 13 and 14. It's a prophecy, and he said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, that's a word for God, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, so here's kind of the key here, I think. If you can go back to verse 13. When it talks about the coming of the Son of Man, Look at verse 13. Where is the Son of Man coming to? Because we think, oh, the Son of Man's coming, that means he's coming back to earth. But in Daniel 7, that's not where he's coming. He says, uh, and he came to the Ancient of Days. I think in Daniel 7, it's not saying Jesus is returning to earth, it's when Jesus is returning back to the heavens. Does that make sense? So I think what it is saying is, after he does his work, he comes back to God And in that time, verse 14 says, he is given this kingdom that will be this global kingdom over all peoples, languages, and nations, and this kingdom will reign forever. Okay, so with that, go back to Matthew 24, 30. And I think the sign of the Son of Man coming in power and glory is not his return to earth, but it is his validation as God's king of God's kingdom. Okay, does that make sense? I know it's a little bit... Uh, much. And then verse 31, it's actually just him saying, and, all, and now at this point, 
His angels or messengers, it's kind of debated how that should be translated, but they're going to go out and they're going to gather up his elect from the four corners of the earth, meaning from all the earth now, not just one location, one people group, but all the nations are now going to have God's people brought in. So if I can sum all of that up, here's what I think he's saying in this section. God sent his own son, the Messiah, the King of Israel, to his people, and they rejected him. And so, because they reject him, they are facing one final judgment. God is now, in AD 70 specifically, showing that he is no longer primarily working through Israel. But his judgment has come because they rejected their king. And so now, the king is gathering up his people, not just from Jerusalem or Judea, but from the ends of the earth. Okay? So that's what I think he's talking about here. Now, if you aren't convinced yet, let me give you one more contextual evidence, I think, just from Matthew. So take Dan- that's, I think Daniel proves it, but I also think that's what Matthew is trying to do. So think about this for a second. If you've been studying with us through Matthew, over and over and over again, Jesus has been going to the Jewish people. Those are his people. So he went first. He is a Jew. He went to his people, and he tried to gather up his people, saying he is the Messiah, the king. And over and over and over again, we see stories that they reject him, specifically the Jewish leaders. I mean, for the last you know, few months we've been studying Matthew, that, that's what we've been seeing, is this uh, interplay between him and the Jewish leaders and them rejecting him. So in Matthew 23, what we looked at last week, Jake just preached this whole section where Jesus condemns the Jewish leaders. So he's gone back and forth, he's tried to win some of them over, he's rebuked them, he's tried to correct them, and then you get this pivotal scene in Matthew 23 where he just condemns them, and he re- rejects them as leaders. At the end of Matthew 23, it says that he laments over Jerusalem. It's this idea that he is grieving over the state of his people, and our chapter begins with him leaving the temple. And I think what Matthew is trying to get you to see is that this is the point where he has now made a switch to where he is no longer now just trying to uh, get to these Jewish people, but he is saying that their rejection of him, which they're about to do in the greatest fashion, is going to mark the end, a final judgment. Because now, what they do, just a couple days later, is they hang up their Messiah, their King, their Christ, the one who came for them, who is from them, they hang him on a cross, they kill him, they reject him, and now, this is no longer just a a prophet, like in the Old Testament, that they didn't like. This is the Son of God. This is his King, and by rejecting him, I think God is showing that this is gonna be the final judgment for Israel and that he is no longer merely working through Israel. But now Jesus' kingship will span time, it will span geography, it will span ethnicity, it will span anything, because his kingdom is now for the nations to be gathered in. I think this is what uh, Matthew is trying to get us to see, which then goes into the next section, starting in verse 36. He said, my kingdom is for the nations, judgment is coming to Israel, And then in verse 36, he begins to shift to the second question where he says, but concerning that day, I think it's speaking about that day when he comes back, uh, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. This is a classic Jesus. (laughs) They, uh, They ask him a question and he says, wrong question. That's not the right question. Here's what Dan Doriani says about this verse. He says, notice that the disciples ask questions about timing. They want to know when will these things be. They want to know the sign that signifies the end is near. 
But Jesus does not reply with a when, a set of dates or signs, but with a what and a how. He tells us what sorts of things are coming and how to prepare for them in that way. He prepares us to stand firm in the storm and stand ready to meet him when he returns. They want to know when is this going to happen. And he says, no one knows. So if anybody tells you 92 days or whatever else they say, they don't know. Okay, Jesus just says, no one knows. But he goes on to say, that day is coming. His, his second coming, the end of all things, it is going to come. And here's a couple of things that he tells us. Again, we'll get all into this next week. But look at verse 42. This is what he calls us to. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Verse 44, therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He says, you don't know the end, you don't know when it's coming, but you must be ready for it. Um, so for today, let me just end by asking this. I won't get into it, but just ask yourself, are you awake? Like, are you ready? Are you ready to stand firm in the midst of the storms of this age to meet him on that day? Because he says, trials will continue. Suffering will go on. Disappointments and discouragements will happen. Persecution or rejection might even come. But Jesus has promised that although this world in this age is filled with trials and suffering, he has overcome this world. He is the king that reigns above all things. He is the Christ who laid his life down for you. He is the savior who has removed all of your sins. And he is the one true hope that you can have a relationship back with God. And he is our hope in the end of all things. You know, I think we, we can so often live in this drunken slumber, intoxicated by the things of this world. You know what I mean? Like we just, we live day after day, just drinking and drinking and drinking the poison that is the things of this world. And we have all these things that we kind of focus on in, in our own sinful flesh from the enemy and from the world that what it does is it causes us to fall asleep. It causes us to stumble and to slumber instead of being ready. He says we need to be alert and we need to be ready. Because what happens is when we just consume the things of the world consistently, it takes heaven out of our eyes. We don't think about heaven when we're consumed with the world. It takes the strength out of our like, spiritual backbone. We can't stand firm when we're just living in the things of the world. It, it, it crushes, it stomps out. You remember the parable or the sower of the seeds? The world, it says, stomps out what once was this flourishing seed when we live within these things. Jesus is saying we gotta be ready. We have to stay alert and stay awake and we must fix our eyes on Jesus because that hope is coming. We must remember he is coming again. That's not a fleeting thought. I know many of us are young, maybe in your 20s, whatever, and it's hard to think about the end of all things. We've got our whole life ahead of us, but he said we need to prepare for that day in how we live this day because Jesus is defeating sin and death and all of our enemies forever. That is happening. He is going to right every single wrong. He is going to bring justice to every injustice. He is going to wipe away every tear. He is going to restore the broken relationships. He is going to bring peace for every anxiety. He will heal every physical illness, and he will reward the faithful for all those who stand firm by his grace and power. 
So for us, as a church, as we live in light of that day, as we go towards that day, just like the church has for 2,000 years, we anticipate that day, we hope for that day, and we cry out in this day, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you have set a day. Jesus says the Father knows on that day and when that hour is coming. And so God, we pray that you would help us fix our eyes on that day. That we would know um, that you are coming back, that you are redeeming, that you are restoring, that you are healing. God, we're grateful that we get to taste parts of that, pieces of that today. And oh, how we long for the fullness of that one day. I know there's so many stories in here of people with illnesses, with trials, with difficulties in this day. And Lord, we pray and we anticipate that you are working and the gospel bears fruit today, but oh, how we long for the day where all of that is gone, where we do see you come back, where you will come and gather us up, your people, where we can be with you in glory forever, God. Would you help us to fix our eyes on that day? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise. Father, Son, and